it's good to be with you, at least in this way. And I hope that you uh, are ready to uh, pick up where we left off last week. And that's what we'll do. So with that, uh, my image is going to drop off so that you can see the, the PowerPoint slides that we've prepared. And we'll go uh, with that right now. Okay, thank you. And I'll, I'll be back on a little bit. Thanks again. I'll, uh, I'll start. <clears throat> so we continue to be in this, um, uh, this unpacking this passage from John 15, which is a seminal passage. It's a, it's a, it's a very important and powerful passage of scripture, as I've said before. And I want to begin just with John 15 verse one. And I want you to see that when you look at that, if you want to open your Bibles, I want you to see that, again, one of the ways that you would parse these verses is that you would see which verses throughout the whole context complement each other. Like, which verses kind of key off of other verses. And so we read here in verse 1, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Then if you were to go to verse 4, it's almost as if you didn't have to have verses two and three. Um, I wouldn't say you don't need them. I'm just saying that verse four uh, can be, you can go right into verse four and it says right after he says, I, uh, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So you have these two, these verses, verse one, verse four, that you could, uh, you could um, uh, contract and put together, but then go to verse four, two. So here, verses two and six seem to complement each other, and so here we read in verse two: Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit. He prunes that it bear that it may bear more fruit. So that phrase takes away in verse two, aero, uh, means to cut off, literally to cut off. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he cuts off, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. That word kath aero uh, means to cleanse from all purity impurities, to cleanse from all impurities. So. Whatever branch is already producing fruit, if there are any impurities, anything that's, that gets in the way of it producing still more fruit, then the vine dresser um, uh, cuts that out. He, he prunes it. He removes the impurities. Verse 2, again, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Then go right to verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So both verse 2 and 6 give a very clear indication that there is um, judgment and cursedness for those branches that are cut off because they did not produce fruit. So you have these two things at play. Abiding, which means blessing because of the production of fruit, and the cutting off or casting out, which implies judgment and being cursed. 
And that is what is taking place in this verse. And so, uh, you know, so Jesus is, this is why, you know, I think it's important to see this text as being really important because these words are very strong. Um, they are, uh, he's not playing around. And as I've alluded to in the past, there's just no way that anyone in his day who would have heard these words uh, could could have walked away without seeing the ominous the ominousness of it. So, um, you know, so you just you know, so we're clear. Uh, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In every branch that prunes, that that does produce fruit, he prunes, and he prunes so that it will bear still more fruit. So the reality, and this is what he's saying here, we are all either pruned or plucked. We are either pruned or we are plucked. And so I think that there are times in the believer's life when they have to ask themselves a question especially if they're in a season of ambivalence in their faith. And many of us uh, enter into that season where we're kind of ambivalent. We're not passionate. We're not thoroughly committed. And so, uh, you know, and we kind of wallow around and we have to ask ourselves the question, do we want to be pruned or do we want to be plucked? Which one will it be? So why does God prune us then? It is precisely because of the perfect nature of God to correct and eliminate any and all imperfection. If it will not or cannot be corrected, then it will absolutely be eliminated because that's the holiness of God. That's how God's holiness and his righteousness and his his judgment work for all of us. To be pruned by God is to be perfected by God. So the question becomes for all of us. Um, I think all of us would say, yes, I want to be perfected by God. I want to be everything that God wants me to be. And then God would say, well, I'm going to prune you. And we might say, well, do you have to? (laughs) I mean, is it really necessary? Uh, can't you perfect me like, uh, can't we finalize that, uh, you know, on the other side of things? Well, God begins the perfection process in our lives in the here and now. And as a part of that perfection process, uh, evidence of that perfection process is the fruit that we produce with our lives. Because, you know, it all goes back to, you know, to again to this, you know, where Paul says, for example, in Thessalonians, you were bought with you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we go back in into John 15 again, uh, we can see where what happens when we produce fruit? We glorify God. What happens if we produce fruit? We are called his disciples. And so if we have been bought with a price... Um, and we glorify God with our bodies, it necessarily means then that we produce fruit with our bodies. All of this runs together. All of this is 
is is in many re- many respects one and the same. And so, um, and so as God works in us to perfect us, we need to see that pruning is a matter of continuing grace. Pruning isn't always or necessarily a punishment. It's just God continuing to work in us to make us over into his image. And the more we become like Christ, the more we would do the things that Jesus would do. What does the world need? The world needs Jesus. So if the world needs Jesus, then we are supposed to be that Jesus. And the only way that we can be that Jesus is if God works and prunes the uncleanliness out of our lives, whatever those things are. Um, and, you know, I I think that there have been numerous times in the course of my life where I've listed out, it's never pleasant, it's never mm, something that I'm highly motivated to do, to do necessarily, but but to list out those things in our in my life that I think make me unclean, that interfere with my ability to produce fruit, that um, that may cause someone to question about whether I really am a disciple of Christ, or that my life isn't producing glory for God in the way that it really could. All these things kind of just roll back over on themselves. And they're always a part of our everyday life, or they're meant to be. Um, And so I think that, you know, when much of the world seems to reject Christ, I don't know that they're really rejecting Christ so much as they're rejecting the church or rejecting certain believers who call themselves Christian. And, and so as a result of that, um, you know, we confuse the rejection of the church or the rejection of certain Christians as the rejection of Christ. Whereas I think we would all agree that if the world saw Jesus in the here and now uh, in in, in all of his fullness, that would be a compelling thing. Um, and that many people probably, probably would come to faith in Christ. So, but the irony is, is that we're supposed to be that Christ. And so the more we are like that Christ, the more compelling Christ is and becomes. And the less Christ is confused with the failings of the church and the failings of individual believers. I also want to say that this pruning is evidence that we've not only been saved from hell, but that we've been saved to Christ. Um, and and that's a huge difference. Um, that when we are being pruned, we understand that that pruning is making us more like Jesus. And in that sense, we've been saved to Jesus. But I think that for many believers, they have this, there's this kind of like um, formula or uh, this um, uh, cost benefit thing that they, they do internally in their mind where, 
what are the, what are the things that I have to do so that I am convinced that if I died, I would go to heaven and not to hell. And if that's all I have to do, then that's only what I will do. Um, but that isn't how the faith is supposed to work. Not at all. Our faith is supposed to work so that the pruning work of God in our lives makes us look more like Jesus and thus, in that sense, saves us to Christ. Um, and that, and that you know, we're, we're doing more than what we should uh, in light of how many people think of the, the things you, you only have to do when it comes to our faith. And so without this pruning, then, understand that sin is a parasite. It drains away our ability to serve God and our ability to love others. So pruning, then, is something that we should all want, that probably we should pray for, although that would be hard to pray for, I would think, in some, some cases. I mean, because I think all of us know that there are certain things that we love to hang on to um, that we shouldn't love to hang on to, but we do love to hang on to, but that need to be pruned from our life, but that we don't want them to be pruned from our life. It's like, and I've used this before, it's like Augustine, you know, as he came to faith in Christ, one of the great church leaders, you know, uh, in his prayer, uh, in in his book of the Confessions, um, he prays to God, please take away from me my lust. And then he follows it up with, but not yet. Um, Because it was one of those things that he didn't want to have pruned from his life because uh, he enjoyed the pleasure of that particular thing at that stage in his life at the time. So how does God prune us? How does God prune us? Well, let's talk about uh, what I think the scriptures have to say. And there's so much more that can be said. I'm just going to try and cover a few things that will help to cover that. But uh, the first thing that we have to understand is that pruning is a primary work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So the relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit who lives in us is crucial. So when we come to faith in Christ, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. And that as he dwells within us, um, there are a number of things that he does. But as he dwells within us, he as he does those things, as he speaks to us, uh, we have to remember, as in Ephesians 4.30, where Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, what's he saying here? He's saying, look, you were sealed, uh, you were um, guaranteed uh, in the day of your redemption, redemption by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who came and lived within you uh, that sealed your redemption. Um, and because he plays that kind of a role, Paul is saying, don't grieve him. So as he lives in you and speaks to you and gives you guidance and illumination and brings conviction and all of, the, all of the things that the Holy Spirit does, don't resist it. Because the more we resist, uh, the more we grieve. And, and part of that resistance is doing things that we know we shouldn't do. So whatever 
you know, so when Ephesians talks about the fruits of the Spirit, preceding the fruits of the Spirit, there's this list of things that Paul goes through um, where he says, and understand this, that anyone who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Rather, he says, um, you know, participate or embrace the fruits of the Spirit. And so then he gives a list of things that uh, are indicative of the nature and character of God. So, there are, uh, as I was doing my research here, uh, the go- I ran across this article by the Gospel Coalition who talked about the five roles of the Holy Spirit, and I, I felt like there should be maybe a couple of more, so I added them in. And if you can see uh, on the screen there, um, two of them are, are in green, and those would be the ones that I would have added in. Um, but to understand, there is no fruit without the Holy Spirit. There is no fruit without the Holy Spirit inside of us. There is no fruit uh, without the Holy Spirit guiding us. There is no fruit without the Holy Spirit uh, moving and directing us and bringing conviction. There's no fruit. It's impossible to produce fruit without the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And so just this list is kind of a, a helpful list, I think. Uh, the Holy Spirit testifies to Christ. The Holy Spirit secures our faith, which is what we were talking about in Ephesians just a moment ago. The Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts. Um, you know, that iconic passage in 1 Corinthians 12, where, um, you know, he talks about the, the gifts of the Spirit that each person is given. The Holy Spirit re- regenerates us. In other words, in Ephesians 2, 1, where it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It was the Holy Spirit when he came into us, when we came to faith that renewed us, renewed our soul, our spirit, and brought us to life. Um, It is the Holy Spirit that brings conviction. So, you know, and I think these are, these two things, conviction and illumination uh, might be of this list, maybe the most observable the most pragmatic. Um, And so uh, throughout the course of any day, all of us are given countless opportunities to make decisions. And, you know, those decisions exist on some kind of a continuum, don't they? Like, this is an excellent decision. This is like the best possible decision that you could make. And then at the bottom of the continuum, you have like, this is a horrible decision. This is like the worst thing you could possibly do. And then there are gradations of those decisions that go from there, from from horrible to absolutely the best. And the Holy Spirit oftentimes, not oftentimes, but does, uh, is ready uh, in our lives to speak to us and say, look, this is the best possible choice you could make. And, uh, and so, and so, uh, you know, some of us will, will make that best possible decision not to say something that we shouldn't say, or to say something that we should say, or not to do something that we should not do, or to do something that we should do. And that, and that oftentimes that decision, uh, is that we decide on is, is, is executed uh, um, like 80% of what is absolutely the very best thing to do 
or it's 80% of the most horrible thing that we could possibly do. And that's the nature of our life. That's the nature of being human. That's learning how, over the course of time, to take a decision that normally would be at 70% and to make it 100%. That is the the process of being perfected. And as we are being perfected in Christ, then we are able to produce more fruit as Christ would produce the fruit himself. But conviction is one of those things that's so very important that if we are not convicted, I think, on a fairly regular basis, then we have to be kind of careful with that because we might, in fact, be hardening our heart. And it just reminded me, and this isn't on a slide, but it reminded me of a passage in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 3, verse 7, again, if you want to follow in your Bible, where the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. So there's this, there's this dynamic that people can have of hardening their hearts to the Holy Spirit. And so if we lack conviction on a fairly regular basis, it might be evidence of where we've hardened our heart. So just even where we are now, just think for a moment, what are some things that you have sensed that you felt like the Holy Spirit was convicting you on those things? And, um, and you, were, you were able to dismiss them or to set them aside or to ignore them. And at one point in time in your life, maybe you would have been really convicted by it but now maybe not so much. Um, is, is that not so much evidence of our hardening our hearts to the Holy Spirit? This conviction thing is really vital in the production of fruit. It is what reveals to us what is necessary um, to be cut away or cut off or cleansed in order that because those things now are no longer inhibiting us to produce more fruit with our lives. And as we produce more fruit with our lives, we demonstrate ourselves to be disciples. We demonstrate ourselves to be more like Christ and we give glory to God because we are abiding um, in the Holy spirit. We are abiding in Christ. So this, this idea of conviction is just really, really important and, um, you know, conviction brings guilt. And, and you know, I know that we live in a culture today that, that does its best to, uh, um, to eliminate guilt. That, that guilt is a psychologically unhealthy thing, many social scientists will say. And there are those people out there that have excessive guilt. And probably they need to, you know, uh, figure that out better than what they have. But that doesn't take away from the fact that the Holy Spirit does use guilt through conviction. We are convicted 
<clears throat> we feel guilty about what we're convicted and we have a chance to repent from what we are guilty of. And in that repentance, by turning 180 degrees away from the thing that we're do- we were doing, then um, uh, we can be cleansed. And in our cleansed state, we've been pruned. And in that pruned state, we produce still more fruit. Now, there is a difference between conviction and illumination. Illumination is when the Holy Spirit speaks to you in a way and allows you to see something that you you could not have seen or did not see before. It's a new awareness about whether it's sin or about a better way to do something or something that we need to do uh, on the whole. I mean, I, I think illumination is something that is very much a part uh, of my life. And um, an illumination for me happens because I love being alone in my walks, um, in my, when I get in a truck, turn on the radio or, or, or listen to anything. I just like to be alone with my thoughts. And it's during those times that, um, that I do feel like the Holy Spirit brings illumination to my life on small things and on big things. And in that illumination, because of that illumination, oftentimes allowing me to think about things that I had not thought before that will lead to conviction and a new awareness of some kind of guilt that I that I was unaware of up until that point in time. And so um, and so our relationship with our Holy Spirit is very important, uh, particularly as it relates to conviction and illumination as I am talking about this particular topic. So I would pray. Uh, every believer should pray for illumination. You know, give, illumination uh, would be closely akin to wisdom, that when you receive illumination and this new awareness of about a particular thing that either you could do that you weren't doing, that didn't mean necessarily you were living in sin. It just meant that, wow, this is like something I hadn't thought of before, and this would be a great thing. And it came from the Holy Spirit. And now that you've been illuminated by it, there's this expectation that you have to move on what you what has been illuminated to you. Um, and so that's uh, I think that's very important for the believer. So praying for illumination uh, uh, is uh, a primary spiritual. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? It's a, it's a primary way of um, our spiritual development, you know, having the Holy Spirit speak to us in ways and revealing things to us about our life that we hadn't seen prior to that. So, um, and then, of course, sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy, the process of becoming like Christ. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify us, and he uses a conviction and illumination among other things to do that. So that's just about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the importance of that role. And the more we grow in our kinship with the Holy Spirit, the more likely we will produce fruit with our lives and demonstrate ourselves to be disciples and for our lives to give glory to God, which is what Jesus makes very clear here in John 15. Now, 
for the past two Sundays, I talked about the body of death. Um, and I'm not going to talk much about it at all today, but just to remind you that it's, it's that, you know, it's that poignant image of this dead body, you know, clinging to being uh, tied to us. That is a metaphor for our sin. Um, there's another text, a couple of texts that are somewhat similar to that. And, uh, and that particular text, um, comes from Ephesians 3, 20 through 24. And um, what Paul is saying here is, is that uh, pruning to produce fruit means putting off or the killing of the old self. Um, in your, for those of you of the KJV, in a very poetic fashion, uh, the writers, uh, the exegetes of, uh, of KJV would say, the new man versus the old man. Um, and so, uh, and I, you know, not that that's inappropriate. I mean, I think, I think the more, I think the more technical word is new old self, new self, but old man, new man gives a, a, a kind of an interesting look and um, maybe a little more, um, a, a little more of a visual for us. So I want to read this to you because there are three texts here that um, I think um, are helpful that we're going to get to uh, in light of this. But um, this this text comes from um, uh, Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 3, 20 through 24, where the Apostle Paul says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 22 to put off your old self, your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, part of of what we need to do in order to be pruned is for the old man in us to be set aside and for the new man, the new man in Christ to come forward and to be more prominent on a regular basis. Because with the old man, we have um, our former manner of life, which is corrupt and so when we come to faith in Christ, um, there's often, there are oftentimes those, those other things in our life that were there, that were sinful, that were uh, corrupt, that still attach themselves to us. And so it's, it can take work learning how to cut those things off in order for the new man to emerge. The old self to go away, and the new self. Now, here's the thing about the old man. He dies slowly. He dies grudgingly. He dies painfully. The old And anybody who is intellectually honest with themselves will say this, that the old man in us, that when we came to faith in Christ, the old man in us died slowly. There were certain parts of the old man, the old self, that we liked. There were old commitments there were old habits. There were old ways of uh, internal structures of 
how we believed, how we felt, things that we would default to that were a part of our old life. So in what I mean by that is, is that in our there could be a time in our old man where when uh, somebody angered us, uh, we would lose our temper and the old man would lose uh, the, his temper and so would do whatever that temper would do and be insulting or intimidate or offensive or whatever. Um, and, and so we get conditioned to respond in that kind of a way. That's the old man in us. We, we're, we're just so used to responding in circumstances where somebody offends us or doesn't do what we ask or whatever that we just fly off the handle. That is the old man and we are conditioned in that way. It's a structure of thinking, a structure of behaving. And so those structures need to be torn down and new structures need to be built in that regard. So um, sometimes the old man involves old relationships, uh, relationships that we have with people that are not, are not healthy. Um, but, but there's something about those relationships that bring us pleasure that we can't let go of. And so they are destructive to us. So these things sometimes die slowly and sometimes they die grudgingly because we're not sure that we want to give up certain aspects of our old life. Um, and it, those of us who, uh, who have been walking with Christ most of our lives, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's still a part, the whole grudgingly thing. Um, but maybe we've just become callous to it too. Uh, maybe there are some things that we really do need uh, to have replaced by the new man in us. We're just comfortable with the old man in that way. But sometimes the old man dies painfully. Uh, sometimes uh, it's going to cause us discomfort. It's going to be really inconvenient uh, to let that old person in us go. Um, sometimes it's like uh, maybe there are those of us who were used to attention, having a lot of attention and accolades and things like that. And, uh, and then when, um, when Christ calls us to humility, that has to go away. And that's painful because maybe we enjoy um, being popular or, or being uh, um, sought after uh, or highly regarded. Uh, some sometimes that's uh, you know that's that is the battle for many people, uh, and and so uh, it's a painful thing. There are any number of ways in which the old man dies painfully. Sometimes there are things that we want, a grudge that we have. Um, and you know, we, we love people, but we just can't forgive that person. And, uh, to forgive them is just going to cause us a lot of pain. We just, we just, we're just not sure we can do it, but we have to do it. Um, and so that's what, uh, God calls us to. That's how the old man has to die. So there are other ways, uh, where, uh, pruning to produce fruit comes from the testing of our faith. And I want to spend as much time on this as I can, because I think this is a primary thing and a thing that I think many people uh, would would 
uh, be able to relate to. Um, so as we as we talk about this, then remember that pruning is traumatic. So pruning always causes trauma in the plant. <clears throat> it always does. So when you cut it, it's like the plant feels it. And it takes a while for that plant to heal from being pruned. And once that healing's done, then it begins to produce new shoots and it produces still more fruit. Pruning is traumatic. And the testing of our faith is oftentimes traumatic. And so here I have three verses for you that I think you will find to be interesting. The first is from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And, um, and so James, uh, this is the brother of Jesus, who is, says, uh, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, the Greek word there is pyrasmus, of many kinds, because you know that the testing, uh, the Greek word here is dokim, uh, dokim eon, of your faith, so know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. So there's this idea of perfection here, this idea of improvement, this idea of, of, um, of you know, whatever disabilities that you had being, being uh, eliminated, um, not lacking in anything. So very clearly here, James is talking about how trials in life that God uses those trials uh, to make us more mature, more complete, so that we lack nothing. Um, and so uh, I'm going to go back to this Greek word pyrasmus because it's a very, it's a very important word. It's a very pivotal word uh, in the whole in the whole thing of what it means to grow in our faith in Christ, uh, as well as uh, how God uses uh, certain things in our life. Uh, in order to accomplish that, so that in that maturity, in that completeness, by lacking, not lacking anything, we are able to produce still more fruit. So the the second verse is from First Peter one six through seven. Now you'll recall that we spent quite a bit of time in First Peter, and uh, remember that First Peter was written uh, as a <clears throat> as a text to. Uh, Excuse me, I'm to take a drink. <clears throat> that First Peter was written uh, to prepare uh, people for uh, a time when they would be oppressed because of their faith. <clears throat> so we read here in First Peter uh, one verse six: "In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." <coughs> Excuse me. That word trials is the Greek word pyrasmus. So that the tested, um, dok im eon, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So here Peter is talking to a whole group of churches in what is modern day Turkey um, and saying, look, you're going to be grieved by various trials. Note that the Greek word here is pyrasmus for trials, whereas in James, the Greek word for testing, I'm sorry, for trials is also pyrasmus. Um, and I'll have a little bit more to say that. But what happens? So that when you are tested, 
there is a genuineness of your faith, and that genuineness is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So then we come to this third text from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And many of you are familiar with this text, I'm sure. No temptation, note the, the English word here, pyrasmus. So trial was used for pyrasmus in the two preceding texts. Here, the word temptation is used uh, for pyrasmus in this text. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted, parazo, which is the same root word, beyond your ability, but with the temptation, parasmus, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, um, there would be some exegetes who would prefer to use the word test there. Um, this word pyrasmus, which in, in English, we either use the word trials, testing, or temptation. Pyrasmus appears 20 times in the New Testament. Uh, Dokim Eon appears two times in the New Testament. And what's interesting about that is that that Greek word, dokium eon, is only used in conjunction with the Greek word parasmus. So, uh, and it's used that way because the writer needed to come up with another word that to make that distinction from the fullness and the richness of the word parasmus. And so, parasmus appears in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, that is the Greek word pyrasmus. Remember, pyrasmus can be used for testing or trial, but in this text, it's used for temptation. Pyrasmus appears in the temptation of Jesus in the desert, uh, where he is tested. That word is pyrasmus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus tells the disciples um, to pray so that they will not be tempted, the Greek word is pyrasmus in that particular text. But in James 1, 2, the Greek word is trials. In Revelation 3, 10, the Greek word pyrasmus uh, is the Greek word pyrasmus, but the word in English is used as testing. So the issue here is, is that the, there's a poverty of the English language that doesn't allow us to get to the fullness of what the Greek word pyrasmus means. But in but whatever is happening, uh, understand that whenever there, whenever the the word pyrasmus is appropriate, three things are always at play. Let me say that again. Whenever the Greek word pyrasmus uh, is applied um, in the New Testament, but in our lives, three words are at play. We are being tempted, we are in a trial, and we are being tested. Uh, all of those three words, it would seem to me, number one may be more primary, but the other two are at play at the same time. That makes sense to you. So uh, <clears throat> it's a very powerful word, and it's a word that um, has a lot to do 
with how we are made more mature and more complete uh, in, in as we are being pruned. So the point is that Pyrasmus prunes. Pyrasmus prunes. So uh, if we are being tempted, there is, there is something that's happening there that God is allowing as a test. He is allowing as a trial. So why does God allow us to be even tempted at all? Well, for this reason. What Satan uses as a temptation for our destruction, God allows as a test or a trial for our, our edification. What Satan uses as a temptation for our destruction, God allows as a test or trial for our edification. So that is why, um, that is why we'll go back to this text uh, where uh, the Apostle Paul says, um, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, for God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. And so you ask the question, why does God even allow that kind of temptation to take place? Because what Satan uses as a temptation for our destruction, God allows with purpose as a test or trial for our edification, for our growth, for our maturity. So that trial, that test, that temptation is designed to prune. It's designed to reveal to us the way that we need to grow, how we need to change. And through that, so that we we can become mature and complete, lacking in nothing, so that in that we can produce still more fruit than what we were able to produce before. So that in that, we can prove ourselves to be disciples and we can give glory to God through the fruit production of our life. Look, no one is exempt from this. We read here in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. If you can get to your your Bibles in that particular chapter, many of you are somewhat familiar with this text. But we read about Paul's thorn in the flesh as evidence and a means of pruning. So here's the Apostle Paul. You would think that if anybody had it together, it would be him. This is the, other than Jesus, probably the most influential uh, leader of the church in the history of Christendom. And yet, he is not exempt from Pyrasmus. He is not exempt from temptation, from trials, from testing, because there's something in him that God wanted to cleanse. So we read here in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So he had received these revelations from God um, where he'd been caught up into the seventh heaven and, and things like that. And so... Uh, all of his work and probably the praise and adulation that he'd received as a as a as a as an apostle and all of those things collected together in his in his life we read here verse 7 so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations 
a thorn was given to given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass, that is to test me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Wow. So, so uh, what, what, so Satan went to tempt Paul to destroy him, but God allowed, even sent Satan in that temptation to Paul to edify him, to keep him humble, to keep him from being conceited. Look, and you, th- you think, well, you know, that, that sounds a little harsh. Well, is it? Um, you know, um, how many celebrity pastors do we know who have fallen terribly because of their conceit, because of their pride? Um, recent. Well, well, let me just read this verse 9, and I'll share one other thing with you. So, but he said to me, picking up at verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, says Paul, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So when we are weak, it forces us to to depend upon Christ. And by depending upon Christ, then what is impure in us is washed away. And then by depending on him and working through him, we can produce and do what it is that he would have us do. So I ran across this meme uh, on my my Facebook, and this is a well-known celebrity pastor. And there's this comparison in the meme between this celebrity pastor and what he said and what the Apostle Paul says here. So I'll read it to you. The celebrity pastor says, Stop looking at your weakness and start declaring the power of I am. Say I am strong. I am healthy. I am blessed. I am beautiful. I am prosperous. So this is the advice of this celebrity pastor. I'll read it to you again. Stop looking at your weakness and start declaring the power of I am. Say I am strong. I am healthy. I am blessed. I am beautiful. I am prosperous. Well, what does Paul say? But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, says Paul, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And the power of Christ rests upon him because then in his weakness, he is dependent upon Christ. So this whole idea of where... um, where God appoints or allows Satan to go to Paul and to tempt him uh, with this thorn in the flesh was all designed to keep Paul from entering into the ugliness of conceit and arrogance as a major Christian figure in the history of the church. We've all seen many examples of what that looks like. And God spared Paul by giving him that thorn in the flesh, that test, that pyrasmus. And so if we want to avoid maybe the same kind of thing, then 
maybe that's why we have a thorn in the flesh as well. Because in as we plead for God to take it away from us, we become more and more dependent upon Him. And as we become more dependent upon Him, then uh, we become more complete, more whole, better able to produce fruit. And for better able to produce fruit, the more we produce fruit, the more we um, prove ourselves to be disciples, the more we prove ourselves to be to be able to give glory to God. So verse 10, he says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. All tests, all pyrasmus. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul accepts his pruning, the pruning of pyrasmus. Uh, the grace that comes from that. So, um, so uh, I just want to say then that uh, in conclusion, that um, that God is always at work in us, that his Holy Spirit has been sent to us uh, to reveal to us those ways in which we need to grow the uncleanliness that's there that keeps us, <clears throat> that gets in the way of producing the fruit, excuse me, <clears throat> that's in our life. And, <clears throat> and if ultimately all of us want to say that we want to glorify God, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and that we want the world <clears throat> to see us as his disciples, all of these things that we talked about this morning and more are necessary. God has called us to a great task. <clears throat> Every one of us. No one is exempt. Every person has a part to play as a part of the body of Christ. And as that body, with Christ as the head, to be a witness to the world, to be in the world, and to demonstrate their surpassing beauty and efficacy and, and, and necessity of who G Jesus Christ is. And that will always be limited as long as we resist the pruning that God wants to bring to our life. If any of us here feel that we are resisting his pruning, then let us repent from it. Let us hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let us receive the illumination that he has for us. And <clears throat> let's change the course of our life and embrace the pruning that is ours so that through that pruning process, by abiding in Christ, we can become the people of God that this world so desperately needs. The people of God that God desperately wants us to be. That we really can be and demonstrate ourselves to be his disciples. Um, and, uh, and through that, and through that fruit, give glory to him. <clears throat> so that's what I have to share with you this morning. Uh, feel free to... Uh, Text me or whatever if you need something to be clarified or any way that I can help. I should be back in the saddle again uh, fairly soon. So uh, I really appreciate you uh, being with us today and uh, and just being a blessing uh, to our church and, um, and being a blessing to me and to Ruth. So thank you very much. 
Uh, have a blessed day. Bye-bye.